just reminded me to mic up. Thank you, brother. Um, that's becoming a habit. Thank you. I'm just going to cue every every moment, every day, every Sunday over there. Um, Paul's powerful preaching, and we're going to be looking at verses 13 through 16. So that's just a little, uh, just a little entryway in, really, to his first sermon here. This is the first sermon that we see coming from Paul. We'll find right here in Acts chapter 13. So uh, as the, the the sermon's going to the sermon title is going to kind of lead us into maybe another week or two when we really get into uh, the content of his preaching and his approach. Um, but I wanted to, just to at least kind of look at the, at the platform here and, and the foundation and the, that, the setup to, uh, to his preaching. So we'll tackle these three verses in that regard. But also, this, this is at this point in the chapter when our missionaries are really venturing into the second phase or second leg, if you will, of their missionary endeavors into the Gentile world. And so we find here, after they've traversed all of Cyprus, all of the island of Cyprus there, their journey on to uh, Perga in Pamphylia. And that's the southern coast of what today we would call Turkey. So that's the southern coast of modern-day Turkey. And so there they travel inland to Galatia, and they minister in Presidian, Antioch, Iconium, and Derbe, and then Lystra, kind of traversing that southern part of, of uh, what today is modern-day Turkey. And then they retrace their steps, and they make a small little stop back in Ephesus. Now, on their third leg, they'll spend a great deal of time in Ephesus, but they make a small stop in Ephesus before going to the coast and then returning back to Antioch, Antioch in Syria. Now, we have two Antiochs in play here. There's really three uh, that's, that's mentioned in Scripture, but we have two in play here. So Antioch of Syria, where they are originally planted this first church in the Gentile world. And now Paul and Barnabas, and we're going to see Mark mentioned here, and we'll deal with that a little bit, has now left as missionaries. They've been commissioned out. And so they first go to Cyprus, right? So this is their first missionary endeavor in Cyprus. Now we're going to see kind of a second phase here, a second leg. And they're going from Cyprus into what is we would look at we'll call Galatia. And they're going to travel through a couple areas in that region. And one of them, the main one they'll stop in, is called Antioch. But it's Antioch of Persidian. It's Persidian Antioch. So there we have two, all right? So don't get those confused. But in this journey, we're going to be introduced to Paul's first sermon. It's the very first sermon from the Apostle Paul. So that's going to be a pretty cool time for us to look into that. And that's going to happen here at uh, Persidian Antioch. And if you will... Uh, remember that Paul's going to take that lead role. So he becomes the lead missionary in this endeavor, and he sort of takes over that role, that position, as they move into their missionary work into the Gentile world. And as they do, note this, that preaching is the foundational means through which they will practice their missionary endeavors. And if um, I may say, it's the foundational reality to all of Christianity. It's a foundation. Now, our, our Christian faith is founded on Christ alone. And we worked on that this morning in our morning's Bible study. But the, the working out of that, the working out, the maturing in the faith, the sanctification process, uh, found a foundation to that, a foundational pillar to that is the preaching of God's Word. And that's going to be a foundational pillar in their missionary endeavors. And note that um, Acts is loaded 
with wonderful preaching. Now, we've already, seen, we've already looked at some wonderful preaching from Peter, right? Uh, we, we've looked at Peter's sermons, and, and Paul would kind of follow a same pattern in terms of how he sets up his sermons. He'll go back just as, as we saw Peter early on, uh, or, or excuse me, not, not, not Peter, but Stephen early on. Uh, Paul's first introduction to a gospel testimony uh, at length there from, from the encounter with, with Stephen. And so the same thing, we see the same thing with Peter, and we'll see the same thing with Paul, in that they'll go back and they'll rehearse some uh, Old Testament Jewish history. They'll rehearse it, and then they'll bring to light and lay on top of that the reality of Christ, who He is and what He has done. And then there's an appeal for the Gospel to repent and to believe on Christ, the promised Messiah. And so we'll, we'll look at uh, some very consistent aspects of that in Paul's preaching once we get there. But note that Acts is loaded with good preaching. And in this chapter, we're going to pick up on Paul's preaching as he breaks into the Gentile world. And now Paul, the preaching of the Apostle Paul will be the means through which the Gentile world will be saturated with the gospel of Jesus Christ and literally turned on its head. From this point on, in space and time, in linear history, we're going to look back here in the book of Acts at the moment that God exploded with the gospel into the Gentile world. And it started right here with this sermon. And so we'll see that breakthrough. But first, I want you to look at the reaction to Mark's departure. Now, in this missionary band, Mark's been called along. That's John Mark, okay? He's been called along. But here, Luke will just mention that he leaves. Later on in Acts, we're going to see that filled out a little bit more for us as to what happened. And we don't have all the details, really, but it's spoken to a little bit more later in Acts. But I want to take a moment here to just address it because there's wonderful things we can learn from Mark's departure that are very applicable for us and encouraging for us. But note, we'll note here that he, that he departs. And it's briefly mentioned so let's uh, try to glean from this issue first. So first I want to draw your attention to the fracture there in verse 13. So look there in verse 13 with me, the fracture. It says, now Paul and his companions, and there you see already Luke's given Paul the lead role there, right? Just by the language as we start off, Paul and his companions. So Paul's front man now. Now how all that worked out, um, we don't have the details, but certainly Barnabas was gracious in this. There's, there's some degree of, of the importance of playing second fiddle. And, we, and, and Barnabas graciously picked up that role. Certainly, uh, Barnabas was not an apostle in the same sense that, that uh, um, Paul was, right? So we, we see Barnabas as an apostle in that he's a missionary. But Paul was different in what, in what way? He was an apostle of Christ, right? So, so Paul's distinguished that way, and he takes up the head role here, the lead role. And so uh, here we see it's Paul and his companions, but the companions are Barnabas and Mark. They've brought Mark along with them. And they put out to sea from Paphos, and they came to, to Perga and Pamphylia. But John, that's John Mark, John Mark left them and returned to Jerusalem. Now that's just a brief little snapshot of what happened there. So again, we're going to have a, a, we've got a skeleton here, and we're going to try to, to um, hang some meat on the bones a little bit in addressing this. But Mark has left now, what do we know about him? Well, his mother was a well-to-do uh, Christian there in Jerusalem. You remember um, the outpost there where the Christians were meeting at Peter's 
great miraculous deliverance out of prison. Do you remember where all the Christians were? Kind of the little resort area there? Right? Well, who, who, who owned that place? Well, that was John Mark's mom's house, okay? So she was well-to-do lady there in Jerusalem. He was cousin to Barnabas. And that's really all that we know about him other than that Barnabas being his cousin probably initiated him coming along. So he wasn't called. He wasn't commissioned by the church, was he? We know who was commissioned, Paul and Barnabas. But Barnabas most likely has encouraged uh, the church to agree and Paul to agree with John Mark to come along so they can bring him along in this missionary endeavor and and sort of uh, uh, train him up. But if you look with me in Acts uh, uh, 15, verses 36 through 40, listen here to the language of how they refer back to it, uh, this incident here where he leaves. It says, after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us return to visit the brethren in every city in which, we, uh, in which we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. Now he's, now he's talking about, this is back on the third leg here. And he's talking about going back to these very places that, we're gonna, that we see mentioned here in this text. So this is a little later on, and they're thinking about going back for the third leg. And so Barnabas, in verse 37 wanted to take John, called Mark, along with them also. But Paul kept insisting that they should not take him along who had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them for the work. Now that's very important language to try to hang some meat on the bones here. And there occurred such a sharp disagreement that they separated from one another and Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. But, ba- but Paul chose Silas and left being committed by the brethren to the grace of the Lord. Now, a couple of things here from Acts 15 that I want you to hold on to as we think about Mark's departure. So, this is where Paul and Barnabas split ways. And there's not, there's, there's not a restoration for a long time. And we'll speak to that also in a moment. And this is, this is dealing with the third leg of the journey. So they, they part ways. Barnabas goes back and tries to take John Mark and continue a work there in Cyprus, but it amounts to nothing. Paul takes Silas and continues on with his work in the area of Galatia there. And it explodes and it continues to explode and churches grow there and flourish there. And there's a great work that we see with Paul and Silas. Started with Paul and Barnabas, but then after this split over Mark's earlier departure, what we're going to address now, uh, we see the divide. One work, nothing comes off of. Another work, explodes. So Barnabas and Paul had two, two uh, different views in terms of what to do with Mark and his decision to leave. And so I want to speak to that a little bit this morning. But a couple things here that we can pick up in chapter 15 of Acts. There was a, this agreement as to what to do. And then Paul chose Silas and they were committed by the brethren to the grace of the Lord. So the church family believed who, was, who, who they believe was making the right decision. Who did they commit to the Lord? Paul and Silas. So the church family was in support of Paul and Silas. Now what did we talk about last week? If the Spirit of God is at work in what an individual or a couple of individuals believe that God is calling them to do or work that God is calling you to do, 
will he also feel that out in the same spirit, be working the same way in the brotherhood of the church where there's confirmation? Is that true? Yes, it is. Spirit works on both ends. So the church here commends Paul and Silas, but we hear nothing about them commending Barnabas and Mark. And the work there, again, fizzles out and amounts to nothing. But also notice the language that Paul gave to them here, and it's actually a little more, fe- a little more severe than it comes to us translated in English. It says, Paul kept insisting that they should not take him along who had deserted them in Pamphylia. Actually, that, that, that term can, can connote really apostated himself. Now, Paul's not saying that he apostated himself to Christ, but he apostated himself to the work. There, do you see that? He deserted them in Panphia and had not gone with them, on with them to the work. And that's where I want us to take a look at John Mark here. So he left the work, and he left before any of the hardships really ever came about. So we're left, again, we're, we're kind of... Uh, uh, we, we can't know for sure the details, but we're left with this notion that as they leave Cyprus, right? He was good in Cyprus, wasn't he? He's good there. Why? Barnabas was from there. He had been there. Yeah, he knows them. That's a comfortable place. And so he's good with the work as long as it's easy and comfortable. Amen? Somebody. He's good with that. Now... It gets difficult. Now they're going to another area. They're now, now they're going to another culture. Now they're going to different people. Now they're going outside of, if you will, uh, uh, Mark's comfort zone. Now he's not going to live cushy. Now he's not going to have all the ease and comfort. And just the thought of what might lie down that road backs him off. And he returns, he runs home to Mama. So it says he sails back to Jerusalem. And if you get to be my age, and some of you here, some of got, we've got a few gray hairs here. If you get to be my age, you've seen this. And it just crushes your heart. If you get to be my age, you've sadly, you've seen folks that start out with such zeal and passion for the Lord, and they are on fire. It's all they can, it consumes their very being. And a little time, and a little hardship, and a little discouragement. And sadly, I've seen them apostate themselves from the faith. They walk away from the faith. A little glimmer from the world, and they run off. But more so, I've seen those not apostate themselves from the faith, but they're on fire. They're excited. They're hungry to carry the gospel. They long to see their friends, their neighbors, their family members come to Christ. They long to speak to them about the majesty and glory of God and His his worthiness of their worship. But things get a little difficult. They get a little... um, have a little hardships. They have a little... Uh, a conflict. Life gets busy. And they apostate themselves to the work. Oh, they'll, they'll show up here. But that's it. You come here, you go home, you busy yourself with the things of this world, and you come back. 
And what it is is idleness has taken over. Idleness. The earnestness, the fervency, the, the zeal wilts away and the work is given up. And now that Christian is idle and an unprofitable servant. And all the times I've seen it. Y'all remember the snow, the big snowstorm of 2018? Remember that massive snowstorm? That's how it's like. I, I remember that storm. I mean, it was just because it was, it was just crystal beautiful white everywhere. I had a three-year-old then, so we took him out. We have this great place to sleep. Man, it was just it's incredible. So we, we took him out sledding. We had this wonderful hill not far from the house. So we made it out there. I had to get out and push the van about three or four times just to get, that, just to get us out there. So we're, we're going to walk out to this big hill to sled. And I remember my little guy, Benny, was three at that time. And he'd walk out there and the snow just took him to his waist. It was boom. I mean, that stuff was, it was deep. It was just crystal white everywhere. And then a few days after, the snow melts. And down in the plaza, you where I work down at the, uh, at the clinic, in the, in the plaza, down the medical plaza down there, there were mountains. There was so much snow that there were mountains of snow, mountains of snow several places in the parking lot piled up, eight foot high, just to clear that big parking lot. And you know what it looked like? Just one big glob of nasty black soot. At one time, it was pristine, beautiful, white, glistening snow, crystal white all over the ground. In a couple of days, it was like a big mound of black soot. And often that's the case in the Christian life. You start out with such zeal, such passion, and then it wilts away and begins to look like ugly piles of soot. The fervor cools off. And that's exactly what happened to John Mark. So Paul and Barnabas, they differ here. And Paul says, you know, we can't take them back. And he waits a long time. It's going to be a long time for Mark. And so he resists Barnabas. And Barnabas is more of a gentle guy. And uh, maybe a little more, uh, seeming a little more compassionate here. But uh, Paul has his way. And of course, we see the church backed Paul. So Paul was right in this regard. Now, we don't have all the details, but they differed. And certainly Barnabas wanted to, to put him back in sooner. But uh, we're left to believe that Paul was a little wiser here. Now, uh, we don't know. Paul. We're not, I'm not saying that Paul's perfect. He's probably, uh, you know, he's a little uh, um, zealous at times and maybe uh, a little harsh with his language. Uh, we're all, nobody's perfect. So Barnabas had a lot of times, Barnabas' Barnabas's easy way was best. His, his general demeanor was best and would probably uh, did more good than Paul at times. But in this case, Paul was, made the right decision. He was wise here. And here's why. He needed time. John Mark needed time to acknowledge and repent. He needed time to heal. He needed time to grow. And by grow, I mean grow spiritually in this regard. To be purified. To shed fear. To shed selfishness. That takes time. He needed to learn a lesson, if you will. And so Barnabas is not even though he probably emotionally cared for him and wanted to kind of bring him back along, he, he needed to let him go. He needed to let him sit and have time with the Lord to deal with his backing off. And that's exactly what happened. He backed off for whatever reason. 
He had a call and he backed off. And so there's some punishment for that. You know what the punishment for backing off is, for taking, for letting off the gas in the Christian life? You know what it is? Idleness. That's a punishment. If you're sitting here and you're in that stage of idleness, there's just not been a work. If you're, if you're here and you're saying, you know, God, what's the work for me? What's the work for me? What's the work for me? And that's, that's not bad. But if you're saying that, you have to be able to broaden that context and say, God, am I really listening to you? Have you called me and called me and called me and I've, for whatever reason, found some way to avoid it? It was too hard. It's too frightening. It's too scary. It's too big. I don't have time. That's not my context. That's not, that can't be me then what you get for that is a punishment from your Lord and it's called idleness. That's when you sit in here once or twice a week and do nothing else. There's no other work for you. It's not because the Spirit is not opening doors for you. It's because you're not stepping through them. And so there's a time that's needed for Mark here. Because he must not deny this. He must not deny his, uh, uh, his backing off from the work that he was called to. And the Lord has put him on the sidelines. And in, in a lot of ways, he's used Paul to do it. Paul was kind of the point man in, in, in doing this and kind of having him sit out for a while. But it's for his good. And the reward for faithfulness, no matter how small you might think what your work is, your service to the Lord is right now, whatever you're engaged in, no matter how small you might think it to be, your faithfulness and the work that God has given you, the door that He has opened for you now, what He has called you to do right now, you know how that will be rewarded. More work. Whatever work you do now, whatever faithfulness you are showing now and what God has called you to do, then that will continue in more work. But that's the reward. Faithfulness produces more work, garners more work. So here's the question for us this morning. Here's the question for us as we open ourselves up for this one little issue that's so, that's just briefly mentioned here, but so serious. And such a big part of this text and how the missionary journey folds, unfolds. Here's a question for us. Have we been willing or have we been unwilling? Have we been unwilling for work that's been open to us for whatever reason? Have you been unwilling for the work that God has opened for you, what He's called you to, a door that He's opened for you? And are you now standing idle? Is that you? That's saying, Lord, give me a work, give me a work, give me a work. Why have you not called me? And you're saying it out of a state of idleness where the Holy Spirit has called you and you've been unwilling. That's the question that we face here when we think about Mark. Now Mark, he had no joy in the conflicts that Paul and Silas had, Paul, Silas, and Barnabas had. He had no joy in those conflicts. He had no joy in the success of that ministry. He missed it all. And if you're cultivating idleness, here's the answer. Be conscious of it. 
That's the call from this one little part of this scripture. This one little verse. Be conscious of it. Be aware of it. And seek the Lord's forgiveness. Yield yourself to Him and yield yourself to His calling upon your life. Now, here's the good news. Mark was restored. And if we look at the book of Colossians, if we look at uh, the book of Philemon, uh, it speaks there, Paul speaks of Mark being a comfort to him when Paul is in his uh, last days in his imprisonment there. And in the book of Timothy, Paul tells Timothy that uh, he sees John Mark as being very profitable for his ministry there. Good for Timothy. Good for others. And we know that Peter himself took Mark in kind of as his understudy, as his scribe, and brought Mark along uh, in his ministry as Peter continued on. So we know John Mark was restored. And that's the great wonderful thing. But there's a great lesson also to be learned here. When we don't, when we're unwilling, when we don't, answer the call that God has placed upon us. When we back away, when we step back from ministry for whatever reason, for what God is calling you to do, has put before you the opportunities that you know you have. And you find some way to walk away from them, some way to avoid them, whether fear, whether doubt, whether dread, whether just busyness of life, whether pursuit of the things of this world, whatever, or the combination thereof, whatever the case may be. There's a cost there come back to the Holy Spirit and repent. Recognize it. Acknowledge it. Lay it before the Lord. Repent. And then yield yourself to God's calling upon your life. And the Spirit of God will open doors again. There needs to be a time. That's okay. There's a time for healing. There's a time for you to have to assess that and deal with it. And there's a, there's a, a reality of our unwillingness. That plays out in our, in, our, in our Christian life. And it is idleness. But don't remain in that state. Repent. Confess your sins and yield yourself to the Lord and pick up the work that He has given you and be faithful in it. Amen? Here's the encouragement. John Mark, John Mark he fled like a little scared rabbit at the sign of possible danger or discomfort. He fled. But later he's restored. And he's restored as an evangelist who proclaims the gospel to the whole world. He's restored in a big, big way. Look, God has power. He has power to work powerful ministry through broken reeds like you and I. And he will. Alexander McLaren uh, said this concerning uh, speaking of John Mark directly. He says, The temptations which have been sorest may be overcome. The sins into which we most naturally fall may be put under our foot. The past is no specimen of what the future may be. The page that is yet to be written need, not, uh, need have none of the blots of the page that uh, of the page that we have turned over, shining through it. Sin which we have learned to know for sin and to hate teaches us humility, dependence, shows us where we are weak. And sin, which is forgiven, knits us to Christ with deeper and more fervent love and results in a larger consecration. So there's the reality. 
There's the beauty of a Christ that is happy to restore you and to use you. But the call is to not, if you are idle, don't remain in that state. If you're idle, there's a reason you're idle. Repent and yield yourself to the Lord that He may use you and open doors for you again and again and again and that you may walk through them. And that brings us to verse 14. And there I want you to see the pragmatism in verse 14. Just a little note here on the pragmatism. It says, But going from Perga, uh, they arrived in Presidian Antioch. And on the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and sat down. Now, the Holy Spirit will lead us into practical, sanctified common sense. And we talked about that a little bit as we talked about the leading of the Holy Spirit on last Lord's Day. The Holy Spirit is consistent. That's a beautiful thing. The Holy Spirit is consistent in working this way. Now, the Holy Spirit may surprise us in numerous ways and how He's working in our lives. But one thing that we can always hold on to, what He calls you to, is not going to be impractical. The more we follow the Spirit of God, the more we pray for the Spirit of God to work in us and to mold us and shape us and to use us here, the more the Spirit of God is going to, to give us a sanctified common sense. So there's practical issues that, just, that, are, that are natural that the Holy Spirit will use. It's going, to, it's, going to, it's going to be a natural flow. It's not going to be something that's completely obtuse and out of the ordinary. And so we're going to see a very, couple little practical things right here in the way that the Holy Spirit works and leading them in this missionary endeavor. Now, preceding Antioch is about 100 miles north of Perga. And that's up in the Roman province of Galatia. Um, so they're moving kind of, in the, they're going up and they're moving in an eastward direction. And this is a purposeful outreach strategy that they're going to practice here. So they're headed for Presidian Antioch. They're doing so because it is the major city in the province of Galatia. So they're going to the big city. It's a big city. What's in a big city? A lot of people. They're taking the gospel into the Gentile world. Where are they going to go? First, if they have the opportunity. Podunk nowhere? No, they're going where the people are. So they get right to the major city. And they move there. And also, there's another little note here. Uh, um, uh, uh, Presidium Antioch is a Roman colony. Now, not all the areas were, were marked off as Roman colonies, but some are. Now, a Roman colony is where the Roman legions would, um, would settle their families. And so there was a, there was a big uh, contingency of, of, of Roman military there, primarily. But also the, the kind of the who's who would, would settle there in the, Romans world. Now they, in the Roman world. Now, they would, they would settle these Roman colonies for a purpose. So the strategic, a strategic purpose in that they would kind of, it would kind of uh, keep the general areas around there sort of calm and in line. So if they needed to be a forceful kind of outpost, they were ready to do that. And so they were good at kind of keeping things calm and under Roman rule, but they also brought Roman culture. Roman, uh, uh, so, the, so the Roman life, so the Roman world was kind of brought, and the culture was kind of uh, uh, imposed there. So there's a purpose for strategic places to put these Roman colonies, and this is one. So kind of an outpost to keep things in line, but also a promoting of the Roman culture. If you will, we might equate it to in our times if someone was planning 
a church. They're going right to the big city and trying to find their way to the closest universities that might be all around there. So the kind of the happening places that really pump the culture and have great influence into the culture. So they would go to a large city and they would hunt the big university. You get it? So they're taking the gospel right into the heart of the culture. This is what we might call practical or sanctified common sense. And they had a purpose for focusing on the synagogue. You see there it says they went into the synagogue on the Sabbath. And they went there and they sat down. Now they used the synagogue. We've talked about this already. But again, a very practical approach here. A very common sense approach. They used the synagogues um, because they had access to the synagogues to both Jews and Gentiles. So there were Gentiles who come into the synagogues and here also. So that gave them access to both. That's a natural win right there for them. And then it could be from those Gentiles that have gathered in the synagogues, if they can begin to, 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 to uh, reach them, that's a, that's a springboard into the Gentile world, the Gentile community at large. So an easy win there. They're able to reach both groups, Jews and Gentiles. And that was a normal order of worship there. What they would do in this, and we'll look at it as we get to verse 15, they would sit down, and then they would read the Scripture, and then they would have commentary. They would have an exhortation. They would have someone stand and speak. Now, Peter, uh, or excuse me, Paul and Barnabas were already known teachers. They already knew about them. Now, we don't know all the details here, but they certainly knew who they were. So they heard of them. And so they were welcome to speak. They actually invite them to speak. So that was a wonderful, cool thing there. But this is strategic. This is a normal, they're just taking a normal course of what they see in the culture, and they're going uh, for, for those avenues. So they go right to the big city, they go right where there's the most cultural influence, and they go to the synagogue. Very practical, very straightforward, practical approach. And again, as they sit down, they're going to read the Scriptures, and we're to do the same. Read the Scriptures and then, ex- and then have a, a word of exhortation from it. It's the same thing is true for us. 1 Timothy 4.13 says this, Until I come... This is Christ saying, until I come, give attention to the public reading of Scripture and the exhortation and teaching. So really, they're doing the same thing. We're supposed to do the very same thing as we see happening here. And then Paul and Barnabas would just take advantage of that. So they moved strategically to the synagogues. Now, again, the Spirit's leading them, uh, and, and there's, a, there's, there's an element of common sense that we should take up from this, a sanctified common sense. But also... We're praying for open doors, right? We don't want to be those idle, idle Christians, do we? So we're praying for open doors. As God opens those doors, well, here's what we do. See that it is His providential care for our lives, that He has providentially opened them. Now, they knew to go to the synagogues. They, knew, they didn't know that they would necessarily get to speak, but they intended to speak. They were going to try to find some way. But these brothers asked them. They invite them to speak. God opened this door, did He not? God clearly opens this door for Paul to, to preach his first sermon. God opens the door. We must always remember that. He opens the door. This is a providential work of God, and he needs to be praised for it. We must give him glory for these things that he works out. He worked out here and that he works out in our lives. So seek, pray, seek the open doors from the Holy Spirit. Recognize them in your life and give praise to him. Thank him for them. My goodness, we're not going to sit idle. As He calls us to a work, go, uh, uh, go to, to, at His bidding, trust Him, and give Him praise for opening that door. 
where I'm sure, it doesn't speak it, but I'm sure Paul and Barnabas were praying that God would somehow give them an open door in that synagogue. It was a perfect place, sanctified common sense to get in there, and then bam! After they read the Scripture, they look to them and say, Brothers, you got anything to say? And of course, as Paul says, Well, you know, as a matter of fact, I do. That's the work of God. So realizing that, I bring you to the opportunity there in verses 15 and 16. So look there with me in verses 15 and 16. The opportunity. So after the reading of the law and the prophets, the synagogue officials uh, sent to them saying, Brethren, if you have any word of exhortation for the people, say it. In verse 16, Paul stood up and motioning with his hand said, Men of Israel and you who fear God. Now who's that? Jews and Gentiles, men of Israel, and you fear God. So Jews and Gentiles there. Listen. And then, of course, we'll pick up what Paul says, Lord willing, on next Lord's Day. But there it is. So he stands, and he motions with his hands. He says, listen. So pray for open doors and run through them with faith. Don't miss the simple fact that he stood. Now, well, I don't know if that was their normal custom. I don't know. They could have sit. They could have, they could have been sitting. They could have stood. I don't know if that normal was the case. But it points Paul out for us here. What did he do? God opened the door and what did he do? He seized it. He seized the opportunity. He did stand. How many times? How many times has God opened a door for you and you're right on the verge and it's just, I'm so busy. I'm so busy. Ah, they're not going to listen to me anyway. Ah, I don't have time. Oh, I've got this, I've got this pull on me. I've got that pulling on me. That's going to take too much. That's going to take too much. I'm going to have to invest too much time there. I'm not going to be able to go back to this again and again. I, I can't. Or I'm too afraid. How many times? Don't lose sight of the fact he walked through the door, run through it. Run in faith through the open doors that God provides for you. Pray for them, look for them. My goodness, how many times do we miss them? Because we're not even looking. Because our minds are just on worldly matters. We're not attuned to the Spirit of God working in our lives. How many times are we just going through our days not praying that God will open the door? Pray and look for them. Listen and look for them and run through them when God opens them up. If you've been like me, you come home in the evening and you sit down and then it hits you. Good night. What was I doing? God just opened a door for me back six hours ago and I couldn't be bothered to alter my routine. Pray. Seek the Spirit of God. See it and seize upon it in faith. Praise God, the man stood up. Is that not glorious? God opened the door. He's right there. He was right there walking through it. He didn't walk away. He walked right through it. And we'll see him preach. We'll see him preach, Lord willing, on next Lord's Day. So when they ask him, he stands. And he certainly did have something to say. And what it says here is uh, they're asking for a word of exhortation. 
Now that is a really cool little part of Scripture there. Really interesting language. Um, again, the, the, uh, that's the, uh, the order of service for them. So this is normal for their process. But the language here we get translated to us as word of exhortation. Um, and we think about that, and I'm just going to look at that a little bit today in terms of exhortation. Well, it's speaking of expounding upon the Scripture. Now, it, it's primarily going to, to have to do with the Scripture that's read. That's certainly a normal flow. There could be uh, uh, some... some um, uh, that could be some, some springboard to some other text. Um, but certainly, it's still always tied back to the Word. So they're going to give some exhortation from the Word, from the Scripture. What about exhortation? In our context, I, I, I believe we, we often give a, heavy, give a heavy end to it being a, a warning. Now, that may not, may not always be the case. Now, I want you to see, from, as it's translated to us, uh, that's not, not the intention. It's not just warning. I believe in our context we get that word, and as we use it in the English, it's usually heavy loaded with warning. Now, that's there. There is an element of warning. But exhortation is a balance here. It's always meant to be a balance. So there's a warning and an encouragement, and particularly a comfort. So when we're getting a word of exhortation, really we're speaking about preaching here. This is preaching. Giving a word of exhortation defines preaching. So when we're talking about preaching, we're giving a word of warning, but it's always balanced with comfort and encouragement. So both are there. Depending on the issue, both matters are at hand. So exhortation speaks of warning and it speaks of encouragement and comfort. So it's never just a warning. It's also encouraging and it's comforting. But in a literal sense, the word means to call beside or to call to one's side. It's, uh, the visual is calling one close so that you may whisper in their ear. So that you have not, uh, not something that's secretive, but something that's personal and intimate. Do you see the difference? That's, that's the visual. That's the picture. So that you're drawing them close so that you can speak right into their ear because it's an intimate thing that you have to say to them. It's a personal, practical matter that you have to say to them. So it's, personal, it's a personal appeal that is to have practical application. And it's grounded in doctrine. So we're going to, we're going to uh, uh, um, give an exhortation from the Scripture. It's always grounded in the doctrine. That's what gives it its meaning, its purpose. And I want to emphasize the comfort. It's all, it's balanced, all are included there, but I don't want you to lose sight of the comfort. And just, I, I came to 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. Just listen to the language of how God is a God of comfort for us. We're talking about hearing from the Spirit today. We're, we're taking a lesson from Mark. And we're applying it to our lives, and there's warning there. And there's an encouragement not to be idle, if you are idle, to, 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 to repent. To no longer be that idle, unprofitable servant. But listen to just the notion of God encouraging us in this language. Because that's part of our exhortation to one another, is the encouragement Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies, the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our afflictions so that we'll be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. Amen? 
What a God. What a comforting, merciful God. So in all our struggles and all our fears and all our doubts and all our, 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 our uh, unwillingness to hear and yield to His call, He continues to comfort us and bring us back to the place of being willing to hear Him and to run through those open doors. So exhortation here is a very personal appeal of warning and of comfort, and it's founded in a sound doctrine. So that's what, when you think about exhortation, always hold those together. That's your really good uh, kind of overarching definition, a way to think about exhortation. Always a personal appeal. Warning's always in play, but comfort and encouragement's in play, and it's all founded on sound doctrine. That's what gives it its grounding. So we find Paul there in verse 16 motioning with his hands. Now, I don't know exactly what he did, but it's certainly to get the attention. And then he says, listen. He says, listen, because he is eager to deliver his exhortation. He's excited about what he has to say. He's eager to tell them. He views it as an urgent message. Now, that's the question for us. Do we see it as urgent? Do you see your gospel work here as urgent? Are you just flipping the calendar? The message that you carry within your heart, is it burning with urgency? Take a a note from Paul here. This guy is eager to deliver the message. The same should be true of us. It's a word of exhortation. And again, that's just preaching. So who does that have to do with? Preaching. Are we all preachers or are we not? Well, we have, to, we have to parse that a little bit, right? Not all of us hold the office of preacher or elder. But in a sense, we're all preachers, okay? And it's that, in that sense that I want to speak to you, right? So let me try to define my terms a little bit. Ladies, you'll not be preaching here at the pulpit because Scripture teaches us otherwise in terms of having authority to teach and preach to men. That's based on created order that God has established in His Word. So we, we, we adhere to that. But our dear sisters, our wives, our mothers, we hold in the highest esteem. And we treasure them. And ladies... You will be some of the greatest preachers on the planet. And God will call you to minister to other ladies. And God will call you to minister to young children. And God will call you to minister to your own children. And you will preach to them. You will exhort them. You will warn them through sound doctrine. And you will encourage them through sound doctrine. And you will comfort them through sound doctrine. And you won't do it from the pulpit because... Scripture clearly tells us it's forbidden. And we'll adhere to that whatever our culture around us says is wrong with it because it's what God's Word teaches us. But that does not minimize the preaching of all the saints. That's what I'm trying to communicate here. It does not minimize that. We're all preachers to some degree. We're all doing this. We're all taking words of exhortation from sound doctrine and ministering to who? When I say we're all preachers, then who are we preaching to? You're preaching to your children, right? Parents, you're preaching to your children. Husband, wife, you're preaching to one another. 
Not in a derogatory sense, not in a self-righteousness, in a biblical sense, just like this. You're exhorting one another in the faith. Brother, sister, brother, sister in Christ, in this visible church, you're preaching to one another, aren't you? Aren't you encouraging one another in the faith? Aren't you exhorting one another? Aren't you taking the word and exhorting one another? We're preaching. We're all preaching. And we're to preach to one another. We're to preach to our children. We're to preach husband and wife. And we're to preach to a lost world as in desperate need of a Savior. So in this regard, we all want to understand the beauty and significance of a word of exhortation, a personal appeal. We want to have that urgency and that zeal and that desire to come and draw beside someone and speak personal right to them, right in their ear, as it were. A personal plea, a personal petition a personal call, a personal encouragement and comfort and warning. The gospel always comes with comfort and warning, right? The gospel is never separated of the two. The gospel always carries both. It's a great comfort. There is hope for a, a, a hopeless sinner that cannot make his way, his or her way to Christ in and of his own will. Even our own capacity, we have no hope in and of ourselves. But there is a Savior who has come down, identified with us, and ascended the cross that there He might make an atonement for all those who repent and believe on Him. And there, there is great hope. But if there is no repentance, if there is no saving faith and the one and only Savior, Jesus Christ, then there is judgment. There is sure, lasting, final, eternal judgment from a holy God who is righteous in His wrath. That's an exhortation of comfort and warning. It's always the case with the gospel. We are to carry it, and we are to carry it in its fullest sense. So the preacher is to be a, a herald of God. Do you see yourself that way? Not in the sense of the office. In the sense of your Christian duty, your Christian calling, your Christian calling that the Holy Spirit, the doors that the Holy Spirit opens for you will have an element. And when you walk through that door, there's an element of walking through it with a word of exhortation. You will carry the gospel. Do you carry it with urgency? Do you carry it with passion? All Christians bring the truth of Scripture home with exhortation, all Christians were all in one sense heralds of the gospel. The great reformer John Knox referred to himself as a trumpet. He was a trumpeter, a herald of the gospel. So what do you understand himself to be? I'm a trumpet for the glory of God. So appeal to people with warning and comfort. Preaching is central to the work of the kingdom of God. Period. In that sense, you're all preaching. You're all carrying a word of exhortation. And that is central to who you are as a Christian. You don't have a genuine Christian life that's devoid of the, the carrying of the gospel and the centrality of the proclamation of Scripture through exhortation in your being. It's a part of who you are as a Christian. If it's not a part of who you are, you don't have a Christian identity, not a biblical one. It's central to the work of God. It's central to the kingdom of God. It's central to God's work here on earth. So all Christians are called here to be those who 
carry the word, a word of exhortation. Now, how do we do it? Well, we do it tenderly. We do it tenderly and intimately. We give the king's decree. That's what we do. We give his decrees. Here's what scripture says. Here's what you do. It really comes down to that. I don't want to, I don't want to try to be too complicated here. Here's what, here's, here's what the king says. Here's the decree of God. Here's what scripture says. Here's what you do in response. There's always an appeal. You know, people have uh, talked to me here. We've talked in the church before about, well, what's the difference in, in preaching and teaching, brother? What's the difference? Well, there's a great overlap there. So there's not, in many ways, there's not a lot of difference. But preaching always has an appeal. It always has a call. You're always calling for a response. The teaching should ha- certainly have elements of that. But that's what really, if, if we have to parse that, if we have to split those hairs, that's what preaching is. You're trumpeting a truth, but you're not just giving out truth. You're not just giving out the decrees in a void. You're right there in the ear, personally appealing to them. There's a call for response. That's preaching. Be specific. Be practical. Speak to the ear graciously and seriously. This is not entertainment. We're an entertainment-saturated culture and it's killing us. It's choking us to death. This is not entertainment. This is eternal life or death. This is the worship of a holy God over all creation. This is not entertainment. So what do we do? Well, we pray. We pray that we'll all be better preachers. Amen? You better be praying that I'll be a better preacher. You better be praying that Daniel will be a better preacher. Mark, Jesse, all those that teach us corporately when we're all gathered. Chris, you better be praying that we'll be better preachers. And pray that you'll be a better preacher in the right sense, the biblical sense. I hope you understand why I'm, how I'm distinguishing there. Be diligent, strive, work at it. Be practical. Pray. Preaching is the main means of God's doing His work in this world. That's the main means. The main means of God using you in this world as His servant is preaching. Now hold that in the right context. But that's what it is. So pray because all is vain without the work of the Spirit. Oh, we're striving to do better. We're striving to be better communicators. We're striving to, to, to pray and seek the Spirit's guiding and uh, direction and see those open doors and seize those opportunities. But all is vain. All is vain, least the Spirit work. So seek the Spirit of God for blessing upon those open doors. Walk through them. Run through them in faith. And as you're running through there, you seek the Spirit's blessing upon your work, the work that God has called you to, the work that you recognize, and the work that you're responding to. You respond by carrying a word of exhortation to your work all the time until He calls you home. And you do so seeking the blessing of the Spirit. Seek the blessing of the Spirit for salvation, for edification, for sanctification amongst the brethren for salvation amongst those that uh, you have a chance to share with that are outside the faith. And lastly, as we, as we finish our time here together this morning, I want to ask one more sobering question of you in terms of 
hearing and responding to the, to the Spirit's call on your life and as it relates to preaching. So how do you respond to preaching? How do you respond this morning? How do you respond to this message? How do you respond? So here's the questions to ask yourself. Are you able to be comforted? Are you resisted? Are you too proud? Are you able to be warned? Are you too good for that warning? Are you too proud? Are you too self-assured? You have some grudge against preaching? How do you respond to preaching? That's the question. Here's the fear. Here's the warning. A lot could be addressed there, and so there's no accusations. We're all in the same boat here. But preaching is the main means, and it's also going to be what you carry. How you go about your Christian life is going to involve you preaching. But for you, when you're on the other end, are you too proud? Are you too proud to rightly respond to the preaching of God into your life? That's where we have to search our souls. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we thank You for our time here this morning. We thank You for Your Word. We ask that You would take Your truth and You would minister sweetly to us, that You would take Your Word, that You would um, strengthen us, that You would encourage us, that you would comfort us, that you would warn us, and that you would give us capacity to respond rightly, to hear you come work in our hearts, that your word might fill us up, that your word might grow and mature us in the faith, and that we might uh, have a fervency about us, an urgency uh, that, that we're quickened to, that the scripture calls us to, to go forth and be heralds of the gospel of Jesus Christ, to go forth and live out our faith, but live out our faith that is never disconnected from our being heralds of the gospel, those who are taking a word of exhortation and going to the world, whatever setting or context you've placed us in. Help us, Father, not to miss the Spirit's calling upon our life, not to let those moments slide by, not to fear them, not to dread them, not to overlook them, but to to seek them, to recognize them, and to run through that open door in faith that you might use us to your glory. We ask it in the name of Christ. Amen.